welcome Jen Bartley as she reads our scripture for the day. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. Lord, thank you that your word leads us into real life. Yeah, amen. Thank you, Jen. Well, welcome. We are in a series where we are choosing to look at the eyewitness accounts of Jesus, particularly through Mark. And the book of Mark and the eyewitness accounts were written about 30 years after Jesus' death. And the reason they were written then is because up till that time, there were literally thousands of people who had seen Jesus minister, who had heard him teach, who were alive, who any time something came up that was a legend or a myth, there were thousands of people who could just raise their hand and say, nope, I was there that's not what he said, that's not what he did. And so we see about 30 years after Jesus' life, the last of the eyewitnesses who are around, as they're nearing the end of their life, starting to write down the stories that had been told, had been heard, had been experienced by people throughout all of their time. And the reason that's so important for us is because for many of us, for many of us, we have our ideas of who Jesus is. And it's important that we distinguish between our ideas and the real Jesus and because without that, our lives cannot be transformed. It just becomes something hollow. It becomes something our, our own. We can't be challenged by it. We can't be, unless it's the real Jesus, there's really no basis for our faith. Today, uh, it's been fun to go through the series because we're going through verse by verse through the book of Mark and deviating every now and then to the other eyewitness accounts and it's been interesting for me because it's some of these passages are a little bit hard to come up with one point usually when you try to you know construct a message you try to come up with one main take-home point and going straight through the verses there's there's a smattering of things that we get to look at today in this in this passage we get to look at the perspective of who jesus is saying he is and 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 how he understands that we get to look at the idea of uh, the interaction of healing and and why god does that and sometimes why he doesn't do it in the way we think he he should and there's just a number of other things we're going to look at it's a it's a really interesting and and even a little bit of an entertaining passage can you imagine 
uh, that day, what led up to this. We don't know exactly everything that happened leading up to the moment that we're seeing painted in this picture of the, of the historical account of an interaction with Jesus and this paralyzed man. We don't know whether it was the paralyzed man who himself said to his friends, I need you to take me, or whether it was the paralyzed man. And I, 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 I kind of picture it this way. I kind of picture it as this, this paralyzed man hearing Jesus is in town going, man, it would be so cool to be healed. Wouldn't it be cool? But he sees all the people going by him and nobody paying attention to him. And he's probably got this complex where he's going, you know, but I can't walk, I can't get there, and I'm not sure anybody's going to take me there. And then his friends walk by and his friends walk by and they say, hey, hey Joe, wouldn't it be great to see Joe healed today? Wouldn't it be awesome to take him there and, and have him healed and experience all the freedom that he hopes for and the, and the life that he hopes for? And, and they might have even been thinking a little bit, and, and to, for us to not have to work so hard to take care of Joe all the time. So they pick up Joe on his mat, and they take him there. And and get this picture. Jesus has come back to Capernaum, to his home, it says. And many scholars believe it was literally Jesus' home, that Jesus had moved with his family from Nazareth to Capernaum. And this was literally Jesus' home. That's that's the view of most scholars. There's a few scholars who believe that it might have been Peter's home and that it was the place Jesus called home because Capernaum was his base of ministry operations when he was ministering for those three years. So either way, it's the place he calls home. And can you imagine Jesus having been traveling all over Galilee preaching and teaching and crowds following him and having a hard time getting rest and walking everywhere and sleeping in uncomfortable places, and he comes home to rest. And the scene unfolds that he gets into his house and the crowds bombard him. They press their way into the home, and there's so many people outside that you can't even get into it. Have you ever been to one of those places, maybe a concert or maybe a a speech by a really famous person where there were like a thousand people on a first-come, first-served basis? Maybe maybe the best picture is actually uh, Black Friday. You're trying to get the deal, and there's a thousand people in front of you waiting to get into the the store, and nobody's going to let you butt in line, and if they do, they're going to get mad, and you've got to fight, and you've got police there because you're concerned about it. That's the kind of scene we actually have going on this day. So these friends pick up the paralyzed man, they bring him over to the house, and and they're trying to get him in, but nobody will let him butt in line. Nobody will let him through. This crowd is so intent that I'm going to get there, I'm going to get my piece of Jesus, that they won't even let this poor paralyzed man through. Now the houses during that day were primarily block mud houses. And what, the way they constructed the roofs was they would, they would lay flat timbers across from one side to the other and put thatch and then put mud over that to make a hard roof. And if you were a little wealthier than normal, you'd actually have tiles on your roof. And they would create an outside stairwell up to your roof because the roof was actually kind of like the deck. It was kind of like the dining room and living room and deck all put together in that day. They would receive visitors there. They would go out there and eat their meals there, especially in the heat of the summer. If they wanted to escape the stuffiness and the heat of the inside of their home, they would walk out and they would spend their time on the deck and so they're all trying to bombard Jesus in the house which means he probably was trying to really go in there to rest and so these guys walk around the crowd they climb the stairs to the top of the top of the house on the deck they lay this guy in the corner and they start to take whatever they've got in their hands whether it's rocks or or metal objects of tools and they start to chip away at the roof how would you like to have them come to your house I don't know if State Farm covers that one. And it's an amazing day. But wouldn't you, I think one of the beautiful things in this picture for me that stands out is wouldn't you love to have friends like that? 
Friends who, in your moments of weakness, friends in your moments of sin and down and discouragement and shame or, 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 or physical illness or whatever would come to you when you don't have the ability to do something on your own and they would be persistent enough, loving enough to invite you to go over your objections. To say, when you say, no, they're not going to let me in, just give up, guys. Let me, let me be, to go over the objections, to be that persistent, to get you to a place where you're going to find peace, where you're going to find healing, where you're going to find hope. And I want to commend you because I think we are that type of a community and becoming more so that type of a community. I also want to invite you in this process that this time of year is one of those times of year when there's a lot of people who start who have been burned by the church or frustrated with the church, doubtful of God because of whatever reasons, because of legitimate reasons that have happened in their life, who because of this time of year in Easter, their, their hearts are cracking open and they're going, I wonder if God really is real. And I don't want you to be salesmen, but I want to, I want to encourage you to be persistent friends who let them stand on their own, but persistent friends who will say, you know, come on, let's go find this Jesus together. I want to encourage you, especially the next few weeks, because I'm, I'm, I'm excited about next week's passage that we're going to deal with, because it deals with, with the idea of how religion creates a hardness and creates a, a, an artificialness in so many people's lives. And it's going to be something that will speak to many people who have had some church experience but, but never really got through and never really made sense to them. And there's going to be other messages coming up, including Easter. In fact, the Good Friday and Good Friday service is going to be a great service to invite seekers to. We, this is our theme for the year, Discover Your Song in the Dark for Good Friday. And we're going to have just a really interactive, interesting reflection time where your friends who are seekers can come and they can fully engage in that and have an opportunity to experience God on their own. And I'm looking forward to Easter Sunday as well. It's going to be a great time. Our little tagline, we're going to, you'll actually see if you're on Facebook a lot, hopefully you'll see our ad showing up on Facebook in this area. And our little tagline for it is, lose your religion. Now, how many times do you get a pastor telling you you can lose your religion? You didn't get that, did you? Lose your religion and discover your song. Back to the story, though. Can you imagine Jesus in the house, tired, sitting down, trying to minister to the people who are coming in, teaching, praying for people, healing people all day long, and all of a sudden the roof starts to fall in on him. He's got... He's got dust, he's got thatch, he's got straw, he's got mud. It's all coming down on him. And he's sitting there trying to heal, and, and you've got Peter and you've got James and John who are, who are nicknamed the Sons of Thunder, both have a little bit of a hot head, sitting there next to Jesus going, let me stop him! And Jesus kind of, I picture it this way, Jesus kind of with a twinkle in his eye, just kind of saying, just hang on, boys, hang on, boys. And he kind of smiles and looks up, and then he gets something in his eye, and the smile goes away a little bit. But he still ministers, right? Imagine that picture. And then the hole opens up in the ceiling, and the guys are lowering this guy down on his bed, and they're, they're kind of barking at each other going, don't tip him, you know, because he's got to get down safely. He gets down in front of him. You, you see the picture of this, this paralyzed man. We've all seen people who have been paralyzed for many years, that how their legs kind of can, can shrivel up, and sometimes their hands will shrivel up. Picture that scene. Jesus has been healing and teaching all day. This paralyzed man in front of him. And the first words out of Jesus' mouth are, your sins are forgiven. That statement, 
on so many levels created shock, created uh, almost offense at the insensitivity of it, created offense at the meaning of what it meant. And we're going to look at that through the eyes of some of the different people in there. It was like this elephant just, in fact, multiple elephants just entered the room. And we're going to take a look at each one of these elephants that entered the room when Jesus said that. Because even as the text describes, you can almost see it, you can almost feel it and sense it. When he said that, there was this gasp and then this deafening silence. And you can imagine the the guys who brought the paralyzed man and, and the paralyzed man sitting on the floor going, What? Really, Jesus? I didn't ask to be forgiven. What can't you see what I really need here? I came here to get healed. Isn't that kind of obvious? What are you you talking about? And Jesus, almost in this insensitivity, is showing us what the heart of the matter is, is, is showing us what the heart of his authority is all about. He's saying to us that, that your main problem is not your suffering, but your need for forgiveness. And as offensive as this would, would have seemed by Jesus completely ignoring the real issue at the, at, the, at the first start of it, we have to admit when we really think about it, forgiveness really is the heart of the issue. It's what divides families. It's what divides the Bosnians and the Serbs. It divides the Jews and the Arabs. It divides the New Albanians and the Somalians. It, it, it divides families. It tears them apart, and it's what... It really is the heart of what creates in you the questions of, even in your marriage or your friendships, how, how can I trust someone? Behind that lack of trust is either your hurt and difficulty of forgiving because of the hurt in the past or your inability to receive the forgiveness of God fully and to realize that you really are truly fully forgiven and truly loved. You see, Jesus is saying... I, I'm going to go deeper than the need you're presenting. I'm going to go to where you're going to really be changed. Because if I don't change the depth of your heart, if I don't change the issue of forgiveness, I don't care what you achieve in life, whether it's healing or success or something else, you will not find contentment and happiness. Now, if you've ever been experienced God in a way where you've been healed physically or emotionally or you've, you've sensed his presence spiritually in a way that just took a load off of you, you know the sense of almost euphoria, the sense of, the sense of happiness, the sense of energy that comes to say, yes, I'm going to follow you, God. And you also know that about two to three weeks down the line, many times you start struggling with the same stuff again and it doesn't feel the same, does it? It wears off. We've all been there. I know we have, haven't you? Haven't you been there where you've had that sense of euphoria, that sense, I can follow God, God's done this in my life, and then two weeks later, you're just going, oh, boy, I'm stuck back in the same things. There's a question I have in this process that I think emerges even from the scene of Jesus' day. It's, what are your if-onlys that you bring to God? The things you strive for, the things you pray for, the things that you say, if only, if only I had enough money, I would be content. If only I had a happy marriage, then I would be happy. 
If only I had success, then I would feel good about myself. I could feel proud of myself. And in the back of our mind, for many of us, we also think, yeah, and I'd prove the others wrong who didn't think I could be this way, who didn't think I could have the success. You know, you probably know people like this too. I've known people who have had those if-onlys. If only I had this level of success, whether it was finances or whether it was music careers or whether it was something, and they got it. They succeeded. They achieved what they wanted to achieve. And it didn't solve things. They were still unhappy. They still went through divorces. It still wasn't enough. We see it in the tabloids all the time. You got the pictures of the tabloids. You know, Katie's tortured life, revenge romance. I mean, it's all over. People who have achieved the pinnacle of success still, their if-onlys didn't actually become true. There's a writer named Cynthia Heimel who wrote a column a number of years ago about this phenomenon. She, she actually is known and was in an entertainment industry area in New York where she got to know a lot of the struggling actors and actresses before they were famous and after they were famous. And, you know, she, she writes this column about them and she says, you know, they were really, when I first met them, they were all just really pleasant people. Hardworking people, just waiting tables, parking cars, doing whatever they could, waiting for their break, saying, if only I could get a break and make it, then I'd be happy and fulfilled. And she writes this. She says, I pity celebrities. No, I do. Celebrities were once perfectly pleasant human beings, but now their wrath is awful. You see, they wanted fame, they worked, they pushed. The morning after each one of them became famous, however, they wanted to take an overdose because the giant thing they were striving for, that thing that was going to make everything okay, that was going to make their lives bearable, that was going to provide them with personal fulfillment and happiness, happened, and they were still themselves. The disillusionment turned them howling and insufferable, she says, And she goes on to say, it wasn't just that they became arrogant. It was much worse than that. They got what they really wanted, and they still were themselves, still suffering with the same needs for approval, the same desire for happiness, the same emptiness, the same depth of despair, the same bitterness, the same hurts and need to prove themselves. And then they start asking themselves, now what do I do? I achieved everything I wanted. You see, most of us are not as, hap- uh, as unhappy as they are. And I know that's a dangerous thing to say because comparing pain is never a good thing, but most of us really aren't ever as unhappy as those who've achieved their pinnacle of success because we, most of us, have not achieved that pinnacle. So most of us don't understand the depth of despair of actually achieving your if-only and then life really still not being any better. She adds this, which is, you'll you'll hear, it's a very cynical comment. And there's some truth in it. She adds, I think when God wants to play a really rotten joke on you, he grants you your deepest wish and then giggles merrily when you realize you want to kill yourself. Now, the truth isn't that God wants to do that, but the truth is in Romans 1 that when we refuse to come to him, that he does give us over to our own desires. Sometimes he lets us achieve our own little if-onlys because we're unwilling to come to him. 
But Jesus is saying to the paralytic that day, and he's saying to us, and this is his heart more accurately represented than her quote. He says, I'm not going to play that rotten trick on you. I'm not going to give you your if only first until I go to your heart so that when you get your if only and you're blessed, you'll actually have the contentment and the hope and the joy that you want to have in your life. You see, our deepest problem that the Bible teaches us is that we build our identities on things other than Jesus. When I attain to something, whether it's money, family, security, marriage, sex, church, fame, position, then I'll be okay, then I'll be good, then I'll be great, then I'll be fulfilled, then I'll be content, then I'll be happy. And so many of us, like the people coming to Jesus that day, with their if-onlys, our if-onlys are just, we come to Jesus trying to get him to help us save ourselves to achieve our own goals. And if we ever never get what we really want in our if-onlys, we live life discontented, we live it frustrated, we live it empty. And, but the lesson here is if you get them, a lot of times you can even be more empty than that. Jesus is the only Savior that will fulfill you. When you fail, he will forgive you. And unless we allow Jesus to touch that deepest place of our life, those issues of forgiveness, those issues of hurt, those issues of bitterness, those, those things that shape our identity because of the pain, because of the sin done against us, and because of our own sin done in the past and our own failures in the past, unless we allow Jesus to touch those places, and not only to be forgiven, but for us to understand and fully receive that forgiveness and believe that forgiveness, we'll never find what we're looking for. C.S. Lewis wrote uh, the story of the Voyage of the Dawn Treader in the Narnia series. And in it, there's a character named Eustace who everybody loves to hate. Eustace is this just insecure boy. He's striving. He's always feeling like he's less than everybody, so he's always trying to make sure that he's better than everybody else. He's this blaming victim mentality, pain-in-the-butt kid. And they're on this journey and this, on, this, on this voyage, which in and itself should be a, a really huge comfort to us because the story is so reflective of the Bible. The Bible, God doesn't wait to take us on this great, exciting adventure that's going to bring meaning to our life until we're all no longer pains in the butt. He lets us go on even in our weakness, even in our depth of sin. He invites us on that journey with them. But uh, along the journey, they find this island, and, and Eustace gets off, and he wanders off on the island, and he finds this amazing treasure, it's just this treasure trove of gold and, and, and gems that's just piles and piles in this cave. This, and he finds it, and he goes, yes, I'm finally rich. I finally got my if only. I'm finally going to be powerful, and I'm going to show them because I'm wealthier and more powerful now than all of them. And he stays there, and he goes to sleep, not realizing it's a dragon's lair, and he wakes up having been turned into a dragon. And he goes through, if you follow the story well, he goes through all these times of first kind of power and wanting to use the power, and then he, then he turns to realizing but he misses the relationship, the love. The, he can't be close to him anymore. He can't be really what he wants to be, even in this. And he comes to this place of breaking. And then the story introduces Aslan, the lion, who's a representative of Jesus. And Aslan leads Eustace to this pool of water where 
he will be healed if he is able to rip his skin off, his hard, scaly surface of the dragon skin and jump in the pool. He'll finally be healed. So Eustace starts off by ripping the layers, and he just rips and rips, and it's it's not too bad. He pulls one layer off, and he's frustrated because there's another layer. It's just as knobbly, just as hard, just as ugly as before. He he rips that one off again, and the third layer is the same. He rips it off again, and he finally comes to this point where every time he rips it off, he just realizes there's more more to it, and he's, he's not really making progress. It's still as hard. It's still as knobbly. It's still as ugly, and And Aslan finally looks at him and says, will you allow me to use my claws? Now, in the movie version, they tame that one out. And when he actually becomes a boy again and stuff, they they have this kind of magical poof that goes on. But in the story, Aslan invites him and says, will you allow me to tear the skin off to use my claws? And this is what Eustace responds to that. He says, I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty well desperate now. So the very first tear he made went so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he started pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I had ever felt. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just like the other three times I had thought I had done it myself, only it hadn't hurt when I did it. And there it was lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and knobbly than it had ever been. And then he threw me in the pool. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. And then I saw... I'd become a boy again. And we so easily think like the paralyzed man and like Eustace. If we only get just a little bit of help, if we could just get over the hump to our if only, the Savior, the whatever we want, that we can save ourselves. But what C.S. Lewis is talking about here is, and what is so consistent with our story today is that Jesus is saying, I, I need to go deeper. I need to go to the core of your heart. I need to rip through the core of that hard, knobbly, dragon skin identity that you have that protects you from pain, that doesn't want you to look at that pain, that's always hard around you protecting yourself because you don't want to look in deep. And I need you to let me to go in deep, even though letting your pain out is going to hurt. I need you to let me go deep, to expose who you really are in all your weakness and innocence so that I can also expose who you really are in the way I created you. It's not about turning over another leaf. It's not just about another wisdom lesson where we go, okay, if I just memorize this much more scripture, then I'll be free of this. If I just learn this communication technique or, or this type of thing, then my marriage will be better because, and we've all been through those things and those things are valuable. We need to learn those types of things, but we all know that those don't go deep enough, do they? They don't actually deal with everything that needs to be dealt with. It's not just another tip. It's not just another thing. It's not just another if-only hump that we need to get over to be happy, to be content. It's much deeper. Jesus wants to move past our if-onlys to deal with the core of your discontent in your heart, the issues of forgiveness, the issues of not being able to fully accept his forgiveness, the things that when Jesus comes and touches, it feels threatening because the real Jesus has claws. The second elephant in the room that day is 
the fact that Jesus pronounces forgiveness. And, and, and this, passage, this, this passage is unique as far as I can tell the whole Bible. I can't find any other place where this is this unique. And, and the problem with it being so unique is some people think it's a biblical contradiction. Jesus actually here forgives this man and declares forgiveness over him without this man vocalizing, taking any initiative to say, I repent. We know from all the rest of Scripture that repentance precedes forgiveness. The offer of forgiveness is very real, but it requires us to repent and surrender to it and receive it. So some people say, well, that's a contradiction, and, and, and they'll say, well, that should just throw out the Bible. The Bible's full of contradictions, and that's the way we deal with so many things that appear as contradictions, but it, it, it's kind of like this. I can, I can tell you that there's many times I preach a message, and because you can't in 20, 30 minutes, 35, 40 minutes, depending on the Sunday, you can't, you can't cover everything. That There's been many times I've been accused of of being heretical because you can't just you just can't have time to cover everything and explain it fully and in detail and everything and and we even see that today in in the politics and, and the media around us. What's the media all about? Is it really about the truth? Is politics really about the truth? Or is politics really about just finding a sound bite we can take out of context to create ammo to create our own perception that we want to use for our own ends? I mean, that's really what so much of it is about. And, and if it, it's safe to assume that when Jesus does this, that he's not throwing out everything he's said and all he's taught before. He's not throwing out the core of his message that says, repent for the kingdom of God is near. If we look at things in context, we actually understand them well. And, and in this context, because he says it without any words, we need to look at verse 8. Verse 8 already gives us a clue that Jesus can understand the thoughts and the motives of the heart. And for some reason, even though this paralytic before him doesn't have the faith, doesn't have the, 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 the braveness, doesn't have the consciousness to even say, I repent, Jesus somehow looks inside his heart and sees this, this, clack, this crack in his heart, this, this, just this yearning in his heart that he can't even vocalize for repentance, and Jesus responds to that. And that's the way Jesus pursues us too. It doesn't matter where your faith is at, whether you believe fully or whether you don't, or whether you're skeptical and don't believe at all. Jesus is this God who pursues you, who looks at your heart, and even when you can't vocalize it, even when you're so weak, so burdened, so hopeless that you cannot vocalize it, he responds to your heart and comes and says, would you accept my forgiveness? Would you accept my love? Would you accept me? George MacDonald and the Princess and the Goblin. We used a, a story from there a few weeks back, if you were here, and, and, and just to, to set the stage again, because you need to know the background of the story. We talked about Princess Irene and the fact that, that uh, her fairy grandmother came to her, and George MacDonald's uh, like a 1900s uh, a writer who wrote uh, children's stories around biblical Christian themes. And so Princess Irene has got her fairy grandmother who's said, when, when the goblins come around and you're, you're afraid, Here's, here's a string. You follow this string, and it will lead you to safety, and it will lead you to me. And if you recall the story, the goblins come one night, and she takes off, and it leads her out instead of up to the attic in safety where she used to always meet her, her fairy grandmother. It leads her out into the dark woods and the scary woods, and it leads directly to the goblins' cave, and, and she wants to go back, but 
she can't go back, and so she continues to follow. It leads to this wall, and she finally breaks through the wall, and she rescues her friend, Curdy, who had been trapped in the goblin's cave, captured by them, and trapped for some time. And as you recall, we talked about how Curdy wanted to leave and go out the other way, and, and Princess Irene looked at him and said, no, you can't go that way. My thread goes this way. And Curdy finally decides to leave. Well, they, they continue to go deeper and deeper into the goblin's cave, and eventually they come out into safety. And upon arriving in a safe place, Princess Irene says to Curdie, aren't you glad we followed my fairy grandmother's thread? Isn't she good and trustworthy? And Curdie, who was never been able to see or never been able to feel the thread because it's Irene's thread, just says, ah, it's just chance. It's just luck. We made it here. And later when Irene is with her grandmother, the grandmother asks, isn't Curdie a good boy? Aren't we glad we saved him? Irene responds, yes. But it wasn't good of him to not believe me when I was telling him the truth. To which the grandmother replies, people must believe what they can, Irene. Those who believe more must never be hard on those who believe less. I doubt if you would have ever believed yourself if you hadn't seen some of what trusting me in the thread could do beforehand. And so often we treat faith as this lack of doubt. We, tr- we, cre- we treat faith as this character quality to which we attain, a virtue to which we attain, but the biblical teaching and even what Jesus is showing us here is that faith is a gift. It's something that he sees the crack and he pours in. He invites us to respond to it. It's his kindness coming to us, even when we're beaten down, even when we have no hope, consistently pressing into us, pushing into us, So no matter where you're at on the faith spectrum today, one of the lessons is you can't argue argue yourself into faith. You can't answer enough questions to come to faith. You can't read enough to come to faith. Faith is a gift. And the invitation from this is for you to change your posture from arguing to seeking and receiving and trust that this God who can even read the motives of your heart even when you can't voice them, who is so good to reach in and press through all that stuff on the outside and try to get to your heart with his love and care is there and that he will prove himself to be real and you don't have to fret about proving it yourself if you will just open to him. And the lesson for those of us who believe is that it's so easy when we believe to become arrogant to believe that we believe better and, 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 and wisdom, and to believe that wisdom brought us to this place of, of believing and having faith. And, and the reality is that faith as a gift means we're all in the same boat. We just may be different places in that belief spectrum. We're no different than the people who don't believe. The third elephant in the room is again focused on the fact that Jesus says, I forgive you. And verse 6 sums it up. It says, now some elephants, some elephants, some elephants of the law. (laughs) I should have said that on purpose. (laughs) Now some elephants of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And here's the deal. A lot of times what the elephants of the law say is not exactly right. 
But in this instance, it is. Their argument, their objection is very real. Their reason for shock is very legitimate and true theologically. You know, we've got, we've got people, in fact, I was, I was running yesterday while my daughter was at her, her flute lesson, and, uh, and there were Jehovah Witnesses canvassing the neighborhood. Jehovah Witnesses, they hand out watchtower pamphlets and all that kind of stuff, and they don't believe that Jesus is divine. They don't believe that the Bible teaches or that Jesus ever claims to be divine, but the reality of this passage is that Jesus, in doing what he's doing, in saying what he's saying, is actually claiming to be divine. In fact, in verse 10, he uses the term son of man about himself, which is drawing on the, on the book of, in the Old Testament of Daniel that refers to the son of man coming who will be a divine, it will be God coming to save us. He is in two places in this passage claiming to be more than just man, claiming to be divine. And then he asks this most difficult of questions, one of these most puzzling questions that that scholars and biblical scholars have debated for centuries. Which is easier to say to this paralyzed man? Your sins are forgiven or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk. Now the word say here in in the, the, the Greek language is actually, it's different than our say. You know, we can say and have no action behind it. This word means say and do, all in the one. So Jesus is basically saying, which is, which is harder to do, to, to affect the sins being forgiven of this person or to make happen the healing of this man? And some would say that, that make the argument, ah, the, you know, the forgiving of sins is, is easier because no one can prove you did it, but everybody can prove whether you healed or didn't, right? Some people would argue that, but that... That doesn't pay attention to the context. The context is that by Jesus saying, I'm forgiving sins, that is a much more costly, hard road to take than it is to heal and maybe fail. And Jesus, others, others say this, and it's, and it's true. Jesus is proving he can forgive sins, the easier thing to do, by healing there's a, maybe there's a part of that that's true because the text does say that, that he does do the healing to demonstrate the fact that he does also have the authority to forgive. Yet which is easier? I think what Jesus is really saying here is that any miracle worker, and there have been those throughout the history, or even any physician, can come and heal your body. But accomplishing forgiveness accomplishing the ability for someone to know they're forgiven and live free is much harder. You see, Jesus at this point is already thinking about the cross. He knows that the price of bringing forgiveness is going to be far greater, far more difficult than the ability to heal. And the amazing thing that we see here and all throughout the rest of Mark is how early in Jesus' ministry that he was so self-consciously aware of who he was and his destiny and where he was headed. He knows that if he heals this man after saying he has forgiven his sins and demonstrates authority to prove that, that he is going to be headed towards the cross because that's just going to make these guys want to hate him all the more. And I think he's also thinking about the fact that how difficult it is for us to repent, for his love 
to bring us to the place of complete surrender because we are so prone to want our faith in him to just simply be a way of using him to get to our if-only saviors in our life. And I think he's also thinking about how difficult even beyond that it is for us, even when we decide to follow him, how difficult it is for us to trust his forgiveness, to let go of the shame, to let go of the guilt, to let go of the images of ourselves, like the knobbly, thick, hard dragon skin that protects us of who we think we are. The fourth elephant, elephant in the room is, well, imagine this scenario. So we got Dusty. Dusty's been leading worship. Thank you. You're doing a great job, especially this morning, by the way, because we had, uh, we had our drummer last minute call in with a sickness, and so our bass player became our drummer, and our sound man became our bass player, and we got a so they did a great job, especially for the last-minute change of that nature this morning. But imagine after the service, we're all out in the lobby standing there, and Dusty's out there, and Jeremy, our, our, our wonderful youth pastor, comes out to Dusty, and he just hauls off and hits him in the nose. Decks him, sorry. You know, he, I should probably do it the other way, because then you'd be the more manly decker. But, but decks him, leaves him with a bloody nose. He's on, he's, he takes a couple seconds for him to even gather his wits to even think about getting up. He's seeing stars. He finally gathers his wits about him, and he gets up. And then one of you walks up to Jeremy and says, I forgive you. What do you think Dusty's going to do? What? You forgive him, he did it against me. How can you do that? And yet, Jesus is giving us a truth here. He's making a very strong point. He's saying that all sin, no matter who it's directed against, no matter who it's expressed against, if it's expressed against somebody else or expressed against yourself, all sin is against him. He's our creator. He's the one who created you in his image. You sin against another, you are sinning against God. You sin against yourself through your addictions, and you sin against God, and it breaks his heart. You know, we see the initial outrage of Jesus, seeming lack of sensitivity to the real need that everybody can see. You know, why are you saying forgiveness when you can see that this guy could, should be healed? We, we see the crowds clamoring around him, selfishly wanting to use Jesus, not willing to even let, so selfish that they won't even let a poor crippled guy come through them. They are so selfish, they want Jesus to meet their needs to bring happiness and fulfillment to them. And we see the outrage of the religious leaders at Jesus' audacious claims of forgiveness. And they begin plotting and ignoring the great good he did and instead wanting to kill him. We see all of the worst of humanity, the worst of us, expressed in this story of the people. And yet Jesus, seeing us at our worst, Seeing, the, seeing us in all the ugliness that we can have, in all the ways that we can come to him and say, I will follow you if only you will give me contentment. You will give me the marriage I want. You will give me financial success. Whatever we say is our if only. We come to him with our, our selfish using of him. And yet Jesus seeing us in all of our worst still pursues us. Not just pursues us, pushes into us to create cracks so that we can experience his love and his healing because the claws of the king are kindness. They're love. 
They're there to tear the hard, ugly out of us and to make us new, to make us innocent, to make us pure, to make us joy-filled. C.S. Lewis said this, he said, the hardness of God is kinder than the softness of man. And I leave you with this question today. It was given to me by Melissa Schaefer. It's a wonderful, profound, difficult question. How is my own suffering leading to my own resurrection? Let's personalize it more. How is your own suffering, the things that you're laying before Jesus paralyzed, and he, he, he may be temporarily ignoring them right now and going past, how are those leading to your resurrection? Not, it's not that Jesus, it's not that God brings the suffering. The suffering comes on us because of our sin and the sin of others around us, the sin of the world the hardness that comes from that. But how is God taking his claws, wanting to take his claws, wanting you to allow him to take his claws to rip that knobbly old skin off you, those things that frame your identity that are not from him, that are not innocent, that are not pure, that are not free, that are not whole? Where is God wooing your heart to a greater wholeness and healing than just giving you your if-only savior at the moment. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your presence here and thank you that you're even right now touching people's minds and their hearts and bringing to mind the areas of their, of their identity, the areas of their life where they don't trust. There's hardness that protects them instead of frees them to love. Lord, thank you that you are a God who is patient enough and kind kind enough to look past what we present to you as a way of manipulating you to get what we think we need and that you look past that to give us what we really need with the goal of freeing us and redeeming us completely and wholly one day that we would not be the people who achieve our if-onlys and become desperate, horrible human beings. that we would find contentment and peace in you. Whether we achieve the if-onlys or even if we do achieve them, that we would be those people who are content and peaceful in you, joy-filled, trusting your love, trusting your forgiveness. And Lord, today I ask for people here who know that they're struggling with forgiveness. I pray that you would come to them and that you would help them forgive. And I pray for those areas where we have a hard time believing that you've forgiven us, those areas where we, came, where we carry shame, where we carry guilt, where we carry a view of ourselves that says we will never be good enough in that area. I pray that you'd come and touch that area with your gentle claws going to the heart, allowing the pain to come out so that there can be healing today. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to invite you today, if you're here and... Uh, any of that spoke to you, don't leave without grabbing a friend and having them pray for you. If you don't have somebody you're comfortable grabbing and and praying with you, come on down front and there'll be a couple people waiting for you. God bless. Let's have a great day. Have a great week. And can we be friends to people during this holiday season and take the risk of inviting, taking the risk of trying to carry people who don't have the strength or, or are too nervous to come on their own to actually come and find God. Can we do that this holiday season? Have a great week, Quest.